Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Okay, welcome back to our Pediatric Surgical Podcast with Dr. Mari Kirsten from the Department of Pediatric Surgery in Steve Beaker Academic Hospital. Today we will be talking about gastrointestinal bleeding in children. Welcome, Dr. Kirsten. Good morning, thank you. Is gastrointestinal bleeding a common condition in, in children? And if it does occur, can it occur to a severe um, clinical scenario? Yes, it can be a, a severe scenario. But fortunately, it is not that common. The thing is, even a small amount of blood can appear a lot to the parents and very alarming to the physician as well. But it is usually self-limiting and it's seldom life-threatening. And the reason being that the blood pressure is lower than in adults and mostly in babies and kids, the liver function is still intact. What would be the common causes of gastrointestinal bleeding in this age group? It is important that we look at upper GI bleeds and lower GI bleeds, and we look in different age groups. So let's first look just at upper GI bleeds in neonates. That could be hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. It could be that the baby swallowed the mother's blood during the delivery, or in a very sick baby, it can be due to stress gastritis. In infants, one month to one year, upper GI bleed could be to esophagitis, most commonly caused by gastroesophageal reflux, and also stress gastritis. In infants, one to two years, it can be a peptic ulcer, as in children older than two years, as well as gastritis. And then in older children, what we must still be on the lookout is if they've got a liver disease and they've got esophageal varices. Then the lower GI bleeds in newborn babies, that is in the first month of life. Lower GI bleed can be because of necrotizing enterocolitis, an anal fissure, and also a baby with malrotation and volvulus can present with uh, rectal bleeding. In the age group of uh, under one year, it can be an anal fissure, and the most common one, I think, is intersusception in that age group, and then very rare a milk protein allergy, but it, we need to put it in to make the list complete. Infants one to two years, we see quite commonly polyps, and, and the polyps can then um, be passed as well, and that looks like raw meat to the parents, so they're very worried. And the one that can cause a severe bleeding is a Meckel's diverticulum. Children older than two years, we must still think about polyps. And then in this age group, the inflammatory bowel diseases can start. And of course, infectious diarrhea or dysentery. What pointers would you look for in the history to give you an idea what the causes of, an, of a gastrointestinal bleed in these children? Well, with this background of what the causes are, you should ask specific questions that can help you to make that diagnosis. If uh, you're in an area where there's a lot of dysentery, then of course you should ask about vomiting, diarrhea and fever. You should always ask if this child is on drugs. Mostly if a, a child has got rheumatoid arthritis, the mother will tell you that up front and say my child is on NSAIDs and then you know that the vomiting of blood maybe is due to an ulcer. 
And then also we see quite often caustic substances, which is mostly an accident when they drink something that wasn't a cold drink bottle, that's not supposed to be there, like battery acid or one of those things. Then uh, kids, we see quite often foreign bodies, mostly we don't even know about it. They swallow it and we, we don't even see it, but they can swallow a mother's earring or something strange like that. And then they will present with a history of something that they swallowed. Sometimes not, you have to take an x-ray to see it, but they might have some pain due to damage to the gastric mucosa. Then uh, if you suspect liver disease, uh, you should ask about jaundice, about bruising, about pale stools. And then of course, there's sometimes the child looks absolutely healthy and you must think that maybe this was an imitation of bloody stools. So certain antibiotics or iron supplements or beetroot can be a cause of that one. And how does your physical examination help you in these patients? Well, it's really important that you take a careful history and then do a proper physical examination. And do that quickly because we need early resuscitation to stabilize this patient. So firstly, you would look for signs of shock. That means you check the heart rate, the blood pressure, the capillary reflow. And then also think about other sources of bleeding that the child might have swallowed blood. For instance, in epistaxis or if they've got nasal polyps or even if they've got hemoptysis and then swallow that blood and vomit it afterwards. When you examine the abdomen, look for abdominal scars because the child might have had liver surgery. Listen to the bowel sounds. In a severe upper GI bleed, it might be hyperactive. And then when you examine the child and this abdominal tenderness, then you will think about intersusception of ovulus and the tenderness is because of ischemia. Um, sometimes it could be tender if they've got severe gastroesophageal reflux or an ulcer. If uh, the child had liver disease, you'll be on the lookout in, in your abdominal examination for hepatic splenomegaly and other signs of portal hypertension. Very important if it's a lower GI bleed, to do a proper anal inspection to look for fistulas, for fissures, for trauma. Children might put some things in other children's anuses to make a joke. Um, of course, it's possible if the child was otherwise traumatized. And then a very severe skin rash can cause bleeding that looks like a lower GI bleeding. It's not. So do a proper anal inspection, a perennial examination. And then to complete your examination as a good surgeon, you would always do a rectal examination. And in this case, you will look for polyps and other masses. How do you resuscitate these children with a significant upper GI bleed or a lower GI bleed? As in adults, you should make sure that you've got good IV access and even two large bore uh, IV access would be advisable. You put in a nasogastric tube on free drainage so that you can evaluate if this upper GI bleed is ongoing. And then you start with Ringer's lactate intravenous, 20 milliliters per kilogram. That is just resuscitation fluid. I prefer that you use the other line for maintenance because of course this patient is now not for us. Uh, replace the ongoing losses as well. We give blood products only if the patient is not responding to this or if there's an ongoing bleeding and with a severe upper GI bleed, it's mostly advisable to give a somatostatin analogue as well. 
maybe we can delve into a little bit of depth with some specific diagnoses. So how would you manage a patient with hemorrhagic disease of the newborn, so in other words, vitamin K deficiency disease? Fortunately, we do not see that very common. If a patient baby was born in a hospital or a clinic, they routinely get vitamin K. But sometimes if they were born at home or the child had other severe abnormalities, they uh, overlook the vitamin K injection. And then within 48 to 72 hours, it will be quite severe. They will present with a coffee ground, gastric aspirate or even melina. You need to do the coagulation studies to confirm this and then give the patient the vitamin K that they need. And in the case where they swallowed maternal blood? Yeah, this one can be quite tricky and they can vomit quite a large amount of what looks like fresh blood. And now you need to determine is it maternal blood or is it fetal blood. The way that you do it is with the app test. So you use filter paper with 1% sodium hydroxide and put a drop of the blood on there. If it's maternal blood, it will immediately change color and become a rusty brown. But if it's fetal blood, there will be no reaction and it will remain pink and red. What we do then is we put in a nasogastric tube anyway and we do wash out of the stomach so that we can get rid of that maternal mother's blood. Or if the baby was bleeding, well, then we clear that out and then we, we can treat whatever was the reason for that. And in the babies that develop stress gastritis, how do you treat them? The stress gastritis we see in ICU babies. And it is quite common in neonatal ICU. And that can be a baby admitted with a gastroschisis or a, a baby with a esophageal atresia that had surgery and has been open also quite some time. And this stress causes gastritis and that nasogastric tube will then start draining um, brownish stuff or sometimes even cleared blood. Uh, it could be due to a stressful delivery as well and if a baby needs quite long resuscitation after birth. So what we do is we put in a nasogastric tube on free drainage, we do the gastric irrigations and then we give IV treatment and the H2 receptor antagonist is what we need to give them. You mentioned that babies with necroticizing intracolitis can present also with gastrointestinal bleeding. How does this occur and how do you treat these babies? Necrotizing enterocolitis is what we nowadays call a preventable problem in newborn premature babies. And that is because the, the cause of necrotizing enterocolitis is a bowel wall bacterial infection due to immature mucosal barrier. And babies, these babies are protected with breast milk. And the policy in Steve Biko Hospital, we're a baby-friendly hospital, so we promote breastfeeding and we don't see any C in Steve Biko Hospital. The ones that we've got here, they were transferred from other hospitals, mostly because they formula-fed babies. It is stressed babies, it is premature babies, and they present with sudden feeding intolerance. Now, some of these babies are fed like one or two milliliters three hourly but then when you aspirate the next time then you actually get more back than that you've put in three hours ago they develop abdominal distension they might have bellus vomiting the abdominal wall become uh, red and and painful and then they can pass blood 
per rectum and that is if it's severe sepsis with acidosis and this blood in the rectum is a sign that shows that there's already necrosis well at least of the mucosa of the bowel. How do we make the diagnosis? Apart from this history and the clinical examination we confirm it with an abdominal x-ray where we see some air in the bowel lumen and we call that nematosis intestinalis. It's clear to see on an x-ray. We also notice bowel wall thickening and then if there's a perforation there might be a nemoperitoneum or even portal venous gas because of the, the free air. The treatment is that we need to keep these babies nauplaus for 7 to 10 days. We've got the nasogastric tube on free drainage all along and uh, they always receive antibiotics and total parenteral nutrition, TPN, we need to give IV. Therefore, often this, we, we prefer to call it a pediatric disease with a surgical complication. So the babies will be in the pediatric or neonatal ICU and we'll visit them every day. They will most probably ask us to help us with a central line for the TPN and then we do watchful waiting. If we're worried about the baby, we'll even repeat the x-rays uh, six hourly. If the abdom abdomen stays uh, stable, we'll just do a clinical examination and repeat it blood gases to look for acidosis and shock and the indications for surgery would then be if there's perforation of the bowel so we'll see the free air on the abdominal x-ray or if there's signs of necrotic bowel and we, we have to do a laparotomy and remove the necrotic bowel. I must say I'm quite surprised to see that an anal fissure is part of your differential diagnosis in this age group. Um, how do they present and how do you manage this? Yeah, so one would think that an anal fissure is uh, due to severe constipation or somebody who did a rectal temperature or, or something bad like that. But unfortunately, it's, it just happens spontaneously. And these babies are definitely not always constipated. They otherwise look healthy and then when you examine the anus you see a small anal tear um, and that's quite painful. So when you touch it the baby will be agitated. So the treatment is not any cream that you would use on adults for piles or anything like that. Just a local anesthetic cream and if necessary stool softeners. So what stool softeners would be used. In a small baby, actually water is the best stool softener. So if this baby is on exclusive breastfeeding, of course you can't give water. In the current situation with, with breast, uh, exclusive breast or exclusive bottle, you're not allowed to give anything else. If they are formula fed, then I would advise that you give small amounts of water in between feeds, especially in newborn babies. And then the best tool softener is actually glycerine. And the one that doesn't do any harm would be a glycerine suppository. And that would dissolve and just help the baby to pass the normal stools even if they're not constipated. And then everybody will relax if the baby is passing a normal stool regularly. 
and with a local anesthetic cream, the baby won't cry that much when they pass in stools and then there's a chance for this fissure to just heal it. And for malrotation with a mid-gut volvulus, when do these occur and how do they present? And I guess surgery is probably a very prominent part of the, the management in these patients. If there's one condition that I would like you to never miss, then that would be a malrotation with a mid-gut volvulus. And the reason is if you don't do the surgery within few hours, then you're going to have a, a mid-gut necrosis and then there's nothing that we can do for these babies. Now a baby born with a malrotation can go normal through life and even have a volvulus when they're 40 or 50 years old. But we know that if they've got a malrotation, it's quite common that they have a volvulus in the neonatal period. It could be intermittent, which makes the diagnosis a little bit more difficult, but on the other hand, gives you a hint that there's something going on. So it might be that the baby developed an acute abdomen, cries a lot and vomit green stuff and uh, half an hour later the baby relaxes and it looks fine again. So what we expect then is that there's a volvulus that would detort on itself. So if there's already blood per rectum together with villus vomiting and abdominal distension in a previously healthy baby, then we know that there's already gangrene of the bowel. And if you don't treat that immediately, can end up with shock and death. They are very sick with an acute abdomen, and this bloody mucus from the rectum tells us uh, this is bad news. The surgical treatment would be a laparotomy as soon as you've made the diagnosis. Fortunately, in our hospital, if we go to theater and we tell the anesthetist and the general surgeon that we've got a baby with a bowel obstruction, we think this might be a volvulus, they would give these babies preference in theater because an hour might make the difference for this baby. You need to derotate the bowel, make sure that the bowel is still viable, then cut the lads bands, which is causing this uh, volvulus, broaden the mesentery and then we prefer to also do an appendicectomy because afterwards we're going to place the bowel in the abdominal cavity with a small bowel on the right and the large bowel on the left. So if you leave the appendix there and in teenage years they develop appendicitis, some doctor's going to miss the diagnosis because it's on the wrong side. I think that is a very useful tip. Could you tell us a little bit about esophagitis and gastritis in children? Esophagitis and gastritis is not that common, but we need to discuss it because it does happen. Esophagitis can be due to gastroesophageal reflux, severe reflux and reflux disease, or viral esophagitis. We see that in HIV patients. And if you don't treat this esophagitis, it will go on and cause esophageal stricture, which is, can be quite difficult to treat. Gastritis can happen because of H. pylori infection, but we also see gastritis as stress gastritis. If there's a severe systemic illness, for instance, a child in ICU with 30 or 40% burns, a child that was in a motor vehicle accident with head trauma, or a patient that by accident took the grandmother's insides 
and then they can develop a severe gastritis due to that. We need to make this diagnosis with a gastroscopy. And then, as in all the other children with an upper GI bleed, um, you need to do a gastroscopy or if it's a lower GI bleed, a sigmoidoscopy or a colonoscopy. And how do we do that in kids? I think it's important for you to know that you cannot do a gastroscopy on a baby who's awake. Apart from that, they won't um, be helpful in the process. Children's trachea is actually very soft. And if you manage to get that scope in, you're going to compress the esophagus and they're going to stop breathing. So we need to book them for a proper theatre and give them anesthesia, intubate them to preserve their airways and only then can we do the gastroscopy. So any of these conditions, when you've got a patient in the periphery, you need to resuscitate, stabilise the patient and then transfer to us as soon as possible. And these are some of the cases that I wouldn't complain if you send the patient with a helicopter ambulance. Intersusception is a very common condition when we read the pediatric surgery literature. What would be the most common causes of it in the child? How do they present? And again, what would be the ideal management of this condition? Intersusception is one of the conditions where the, the natural a pathway of the disease makes it actually quite difficult to make the diagnosis. So let's first get to the definition. What is intersusception? That's when one part of the intestine move into another one, invaginate into another one. In most cases, we see that it's the ileum going into the colon. Now, the most common cause for this is a viral infection and really it can be any viral infection. Our department were involved with several international research projects and there's not one virus that stands out that you can say it's this one or the other one. So what happens is that this ch children might have an upper airway infection, then they swallow this infective phlegm, goes into the intestines and cause an, an inflammatory reaction there, which uh, increase the size of the lymph nodes in the bowel wall. So this lymphoid hyperplasia of pious patches is then the lead point that causes the intersection. It can also be a child that had diarrhea, and this is then one of the cases where it's often missed. Because what happens if there's now an intersusception, then the mucosa would slough off and you'll see this red currant jelly stools that is now actually mucus mixed with blood, which means that the mucosa sloughed off. But if you're in an area where there's a lot of dysentery and the child comes with a history of diarrhea and now it's got bloody stools, you might make the mistake and treat this patient for, for dysentery. So then this is an intermittent colicky pain that these babies have. They've got an intersusception and their body tries to overcome that with colicky pain. They cry a lot and if it does overcome it, they, they might then be calm again and half an hour or an hour later it starts all over again. And that should be the indication for you to think what is going on. Was this baby healthy before? 
um, and, and am I not missing an intersection? So the other clinical signs would be vomiting because this is a bowel obstruction and abdominal distension and tenderness. But then also, if you're lucky, you might feel a mass. So this mass can be in the abdomen or, of course, you're going to do a rectal examination and you're going to feel for a rectal mass. If you've done that and you've got this bloody slimy stools on your glove, the diagnosis most probably is an intersection. To confirm the diagnosis in the periphery, then you'll do an abdominal x-ray and it will show you air fluid levels. That's a bowel obstruction. So then you'll transfer the baby to us as soon as possible. And this is also actually the difference between a first world country and a third world country that we have. As soon as the baby arrives here at Steve Pico, the tertiary hospital, we will ask for an ultrasound. And an ultrasound can immediately confirm the diagnosis with a very typical target sign. And in first world countries, they will do the ultrasound even in the rural areas. We don't have that luxury. Now, how do we treat them? First of all, we've got to treat like uh, bowel obstruction. So we put in a nasogastric tube on free drainage and we give IV fluids, rehydration fluid and maintenance and replace the ongoing losses. If this baby is then stable here in the tertiary hospital, he was properly resuscitated. He doesn't have any peritonitis or free air on an abdominal x-ray. We will try to do a pneumatic reduction. So how do you do that? We use a catheter that is connected to a bermanometer. And under screening, we put some air under control condition. We can see how much air we're putting in, what pressure we're using. We put air in and we can see how we now can actually reduce this invagination. If that failed, or if it was contraindicated to do a pneumatic reduction, we will continue with a laparotomy. And intraoperatively, you'll first try to do a manual reduction of this bowel. You'll try and reduce this intersusception and evaluate if the bowel is still viable. Unfortunately, due to the long turnover with referral of patients coming from rural areas, usually if the pneumatic reduction was not successful, it's also not possible to do a manual reduction. And then, because it's the ileum going into the colon, we need to do a right hemicolectomy to resect that intersusception and do a primary anastomosis. Now, in an adult, that would be quite major surgery. You would be worried that they're going to have diarrhea, that they're going to have a vitamin B12 deficiency. And we were involved in research where both of them were evaluated. And um, we did not find any of those. And that is because the children can adapt. If they were healthy before, then after resection of the right colon and the distal part of of the ileum without an ileocecal valve, they might have diarrhea for a day or two or three. And they never develop a vitamin B deficiency. We've proven that because they adapt and they just make the intrinsic factor elsewhere. One important thing that you should realize is the age group. 
And as we set each babies between the age of three months and 18 months with a peak of five months. Now, if you've got a child older than that or younger than that, and you think there's an intersusception, most probably there's a pathological lead point. And what could that be, especially in older children? It can be tumors and most specifically lymphoma. It could be a polyp. And then it can be Meckel's diverticulum, which we're going to discuss just now. It can be a severe worm infestation or foreign bodies that a, a child swallowed and then it got stuck somewhere and causes a lead point. The overall prognosis of intersusception, if treated well, is excellent. So what do you need to know? Think about it so that you can make the diagnosis. Refer as soon as possible in a good stable condition with a working IV line, proper resuscitation, and then when the baby arrives in the tertiary hospital, mostly the prognosis would be excellent. Acutely ill, sometimes they arrive here severely dehydrated, even on the verge of kidney failure because of dehydration that was missed because it was such a healthy fat baby. We need to admit them to ICU, but within a week they recover and we discharge them and on follow-up they're doing excellent. And what is a Meckel's diverticulum? A Meckel's diverticulum is a true diverticulum, which means it is an outpost uh, of the antimesenteric border of the small bowel. We see it mostly in the ileum, about 70 centimeters from the ileocolic junction and it contains then all the layers of the intestinal wall. It is a vitellin duct abnormality. So why is this important? It is important because it can cause very specific complications. Because it's an outpost, a diverticulum, it can cause bowel obstruction, it can cause a perforation. Why does that happen? Because in 80% of these cases, there's ectopic gastric mucosa there, and that can cause ulceration with bleeding and a perforation. And as, as I've said just before, it can also be a reason for an intersusception. So they present with massive but painless lower GI bleed. It, it just, sometimes the, the HP can drop to three or four, and it stops spontaneously. They need a transfusion, and now you need to think what is going on. So if you do a sigmoidoscopy or a proper colonoscopy on them, you don't find any reason for a massive lower GI bleed. The, the colon is normal, and um, you don't see anything. In that case, then you need to think, is this not perhaps a Meckel's diverticulum? And the way to diagnose it is to look for abnormal gastric mucosal cells and we demonstrate that with a technetium scan and uh, if there's a hot spot apart from in the stomach we've made the diagnosis and the treatment is surgical excision. If the child had one episode of massive bleeding and you've made the diagnosis you'll put this child in the next available theater list and do surgical excision of that Meckel's diverticulum. And I think lastly, if you can give us a few words on polyps. 
Apolyps is quite an interesting one in children because the mother, typical history might be the mother is coming into your rooms with a three, four year old child running around, not anemic, not acutely ill at all, and she shows you a video that she took of this massive blood loss in the toilet that was so scary. And then you should think this might be a polyp. We do have two different types of polyps. The hamartomas is quite common in toddlers and it can undergo autoamputation and that's where the bleeding comes from. Sometimes they might even pass this polyp through the anus when passing stools and then it goes back in. That's also very scary and they'll definitely bring you a picture or a video of that. So the treatment would be in all of them to do a sigmoidoscopy to confirm the diagnosis. We need to sedate them properly to do that and reseek the polyp if it's there. Make sure that there are not others. And it's essential to do histology to confirm the diagnosis. These hematomas doesn't have any malignant potential. The adenomas is very rare in smaller children. It presents around about 8, 9, 10 years of age and then mostly associated with familial polyposis coli. These multiple polyps has a high cancer risk and you can't just do repeated colonoscopies and snare as many polyps as you can. You actually need to do a total colectomy or a subtotal colectomy in early adolescence and need to follow up the family and then transfer these patients to the adult sur surgeons for lifelong follow-up. Thank you very much for this talk. Do you have any concluding comments just for our listeners to tie everything together? I think the one message I would like to convey is never jump to conclusions. Don't think it's innocent uh, if you're not sure what is going on. Always take a proper history, examine the children properly, do a PR, in, then come to a conclusion Make sure if you need to resuscitate this patient and if you do need to do that, stabilize and transfer as soon as possible so that we can make a definitive diagnosis with a gastroscopy or a colonoscopy and give proper treatment. Great. Thank you very much for this podcast and we look forward to hearing from you in the future. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh, and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.